Um, I hope everybody's okay. Julian. We have a guest. Um, Julian and Gita are co-workers, I guess. You want to introduce yourself? And it's good to have you. Yeah, thank you. Just go ahead. Say, say something. Does it, have you all met Julie? Mm -hmm. I, I work with Gita at um, Trinity High School. I'm the nurse there. And, and I just, I'm excited. I, I've been wanting to come to this. But when I go home after work, it's real hard for me to get out. So I figure once I come, then I'll say, okay, you can get out and do it. Glad you're here. You picked a good one to come to. I would have changed the introduction. I would have said, Geet is a friend of Julie's. <laughs> <coughs> any, any prayer requests tonight? I feel like we're still... Yes. Did you say death? Yes, oh. Request. Yes, he has a prayer request. I just hope we're I'm feeling like we're missing. I hope everything's going okay. Come on, go ahead. My uncle Leonard is maybe days, weeks, months, but maybe not away from time. Yeah. I did not know that. When did you hear that? This morning. Okay. How old is he? Oh, no one knows. Okay. Yeah. Is there anything <clears throat> wrong, or just you just concerned? Well, he's got cancer. Some sort of cancer. What's his name? Leonard. Leonard. Okay. And our daughter. What's wrong with our daughter? Her teeth. School, school, do it to anybody today. God, what's going on in school is. They had a picnic today. It's almost threatening to anybody who. What anyway, what's her name again? Juliet. 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 Anybody else? Don't be shy if you have. I'm going to be shy right now. <laughs> okay, I'm not going to be. I'm going to pray for you. <laughs> That's great. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Thank you again, Lord, for the gift of this day, for the gift of yourself in the Mass this morning, for your presence with us through the day. Um, ask a special blessing on Leonard. Um, watch over him. He's had a long life. Death won't be a surprise. It's so often a surprise. We're reading a book about uh, preparing for death. Um, and it raises a question of whether we're really ready for it when it comes. Um, be with him. Watch over him. Um, be with those um, whose cares are great right now because of his age and his cancer. Um, help prepare him, help him in his own heart um, to get ready to leave this world and to meet you. Um, watch over Juliet um, and strengthen her um, commitment to do well in school. Um, help her with any medical, physical issues um, she has, her teeth. Um, in some ways more important spiritually in all that she does. Um, at this stage in her life to give herself to her studies. Um, 
help her parents have quiet hearts. Even though it's hard to do with our kids so often these days, a lot's going on in our world. Um, watch over Bob and Marcy. Um, surround Marcy with your protection. Um, help ease her pain if it's possible. If it's not, let something in her heart um, open to your cross and know that um, suffering is can bring her closer to you. It's something the world um, wants to take away. Um, none of us like suffering, but so often it is the means to you and a kind of wisdom. It helps us see things differently. When we're free of suffering, it's so much easier to go along and ignore final things. So be with the two of them and with Bob's daughter. Um, help her in struggle she's having with that disease. I ask for a prayer or blessing on um, Joe and Mary and, um, and Jeannie and Carl. Um, I hope they're okay. Um, and I ask a special blessing on our two oldest sons, Thomas and Christopher, help them in their struggles. Um, anything I'm Um, and I ask a special blessing on all of us. I'm sorry Joe and Mary aren't here, and even Mark. Um, we're reading a play about martyrdom and the way we live our lives daily, and it's a s stunning, in some ways, convicting prayer play. Um, give us the courage to read it and actually carry it, be moved by it. Um, whatever difficult questions it leaves us with, um, help us to see them as a grace for us. Um, we know by now that there's a great power in these works. Help us to give ourselves to them, find the courage and the humility to do that. We offer these prayers in your name, Christ our Lord. Amen. Let's see. Um, Gita was good enough to offer her board again, although she's tried to get rid of it on me now a couple of times. <laughs> There's a backstory there, I'm not going to go. Anyway, um, she brought a, a board and I wasn't sure that I was going to have it, so I put together some notes for you. They're the kind of, usually they're the kind of notes that I make for myself that I work off of and you don't have to look at them, but they're there if you, um, if you need them. It's just an outline of stuff we're going to cover, so it might be helpful. What I'd, what I'd like to do tonight to start is go back to the Marina poem, um, because I wasn't comfortable with what I did with it before, and I, I, it's, it's too important a poem, and it speaks so directly to the Murder of the Cathedral play that we're reading, so I'd like to take a few minutes and go back over it. So pull it out. You've all got a copy, huh? <coughs> Okay. God, my eyes. Are there any more? Is that a? Do you have any more copies of the outline? Kaya. Thanks. God, my eyes are just so going. Um. The back. Wait, a couple of things. The um. 
Eliot wrote a couple of poems um, a little bit before he wrote The Murder of the Cathedral um, and after he wrote Proof Rock and The Wasteland. I've already told you that those were groundbreaking poems. Um, both of them um, presented problems to readers that they'd not faced before. They were absolutely modern. They speak to modern conditions. In some ways, they're an answer to romantic poetry in the 19th century. If you know anything about Shelley or Keats or Byron or Wordsworth, if you've read a little bit of Wordsworth, you'll know that rom romantic poetry comes out of a reaction to what's happened with reason in the West. Because after the Enlightenment, reason is claimed by the sciences and um, it's co-opted. I mean, they, they seem to speak for reason. So the kind of natural reason we associate with philosophy or poetry is gone. So all of those poets are speaking in, um, on behalf of the imagination, what the imagination could do, because they're aware, they're aware that a world is going. What's happening in the Romantic period, 18th, 19th century, is in some ways awful. Um, the industrialization, um, all sorts of inhuman. If you remember the Blake poems we read, you remember the Milton and um, speaking about the green of England that's been lost, the satanic mills because he was looking around at the industrial factories and, and being aware of how inhuman they were and speaking of this Jerusalem that will come. Um, the, the poets were speaking largely out of their own longing for something that had been lost. They looked back to a Catholic age. This is Protestant England. None of them were um, Catholic. They couldn't go back to Catholicism. Um, they thought it was a corrupt, superstitious world. Um, but each one of this is speaking from his own personal experiences, and there's a, um, a subjective element and, in some ways, a, a excessive willfulness. Shelley aspires for things that are beyond his reach. Eliot is aware of all that. So when Eliot sits down to write his poetry, he's aware that there was something wrong with the Romantic movement, all the Romantic poets. They were too caught up in their own emotions, their own private feelings, and they were out of touch with something more. Um, so when he writes Proof Rock, the love song of Jeffrey Proof Rock, he's showing us an image of a modern man caught in his world. And you know from what we've done with it that Proof Rock is really taking us into an infernal world. It's taking us into Dante's hell. Shortly after that, he writes The Wasteland, which is about the modern world. It's a, it's a world, um, a wasteland. Um, it's a world of sterility, of spiritual rootlessness. Man has lost his place. It, it's a devastating poem. Modern intellectuals loved it. They, they thought that Eliot was making clear something everybody had felt but nobody had expressed before. So people flocked to him. When he made his conversion around 19, somewhere around 1930, I forgot the exact date, they turned on him because none of the modern intellectuals could go back to Christianity. They thought going to Christianity was um, retreating into a superstition. But Eliot had made his mark. Um, something new had come into the world. Roughly about this time, slightly before his conversion, he writes this small group, this small handful of poems. I've given you Simeon. Did, did, I, did I give that to you tonight? It's right here. Can you, yeah, can you just pass it around? Sure. We'll do that next week. 
the song for you all remember you all remember who Simeon was in the Bible? Yes. Chester, go ahead. Christ was taken into the temple for baptism. Simeon was present, and he was a Jew who had waited for the Messiah. Not for baptism. Or it was the presentation, was it? What was it? it wasn't it? Yes, was the offering to the Lord. It's not. Yeah. Not I thought. Oh, he's twelve. He's not baptized till he's an adult. Yeah, twelve. Oh, at the river. Yeah. Circumcision. Presentation yeah, and offering. Yeah. It's part of the. Uh, um, Simeon was present, and and I mean, obviously, under the inspiration of the Spirit, he recognizes that this is the Messiah, and he he says, "I have seen the Lord," and he can now rest. It's here. I've got the. If you look at the sheet I've given you, it's it's Eliot's poem, and on the back, I've I've I'm, I've given you the passage from Luke. Um, that, re- that records it, so you got both of those. We'll do that next week. But those are two of a handful of poems that Eliot wrote about this period. Shortly after this, he's going to do murder, murder in the cathedral. The back story for murder, the cath- or for the Marina poem, is this. Remember, I've told you that Eliot at this time had um, had begun reading critics who were writing on Shakespeare and opening new ways of looking at Shakespeare. Um, and he was he was absolutely taken by what they were doing. The critics were unusual. They, they were extraordinary because both of them, I'm thinking particularly of G. Wilson Knight, was writing books of criticism showing this transcendent quality to Shader's, Shakespeare's later plays. Nobody had seen those things. They just sort of passed them by because of modern theories or personal preoccupations, but they didn't see it. Knight opened up a world. And it affected Eliot. He went back and read those poems closely. Because of his inspiration of, of one of them, the, 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 the play called Pericles, I've mentioned it before, he wrote this poem. There are two Shakespeare plays that you want to be aware of reading this poem. One of them we've already done, The Winter's Tale. You, you know that, at least in my judgment, The Winter's Tale, I think, is the greatest poem that Shakespeare wrote. Um, and I'm, I'm aware of Hamlet and King Lear when I say that, Macbeth and the others, Othello. Um, towards the end of his life, he wrote this play called The Winter Tale, which deals with the Othello theme. So Othello going mad and accusing his wife of infidelity. Except in Othello, um, you've got Iago working on him. It's bringing this man to this distrust and hatred and a spirit of vengeance, wanting to get back at his wife because he believes she's betrayed him when she hasn't. In Othello, it's the same thing, except there's nobody working on Leontes, the king. It comes from within himself. So in my mind, it represents a a step forward for Shakespeare because he sees the responsibility for this rests with the man. Somebody's not working on him. In that play, um, Leontes, the king, he's, he's... had his friend Polixenes visit him for nine months, and when the play opens, Polixenes is going to take his leave, 
He and Hermione, the, the king's wife, are off in a corner saying goodbye. Leontes looks at them and he's overcome with rage, absolute rage, because he thinks the two have been unfaithful. Um, the, the, I, we're going to do it, I think, again when we, when we finish Dostoevsky. But in that moment, he gets his own courtier to kill Polixenes. The, the courtier knows that Polixenes is not guilty, so he tells Polixenes to flee and they go. Um, Leontes is outright, she puts his wife in the tower. It, it's so reminiscent of Henry VIII and what Henry did with his wives. And um, Shakespeare's aware of that. So many of his plays are dealing indirectly with the totalitarian, absolutist powers of the, tu the Tudor kings. Um, he puts his wife in the tower, she's pregnant, and sends an embassy off to an oracle, the oracle of Apollo, convinced that it will come back justifying what he's done. He, he believes he's right. Um, the oracle comes back and says that Polixen, or Leontes is a tyrant. Um, I can't rem remember the rest of the words. It, it had something maybe about his son, but he says, the oracle says, and um, that which is lost will, that he will not have an heir. He will not have an heir until that which is lost is found. Now, in this in interim period, um, Hermione has a child, it's Leontes, he's convinced it's Polixenes. He tells another courtier, uh, Perdita's, or Paulina's, one of the, the hand, uh, Hermione's handmaiden, Paulina, um, her husband to take that child and take it away so that it will die. Antigonus, the Lord, takes the child into uh, the land where Polixenes is king. Um, Leontes didn't intend that, but he does. Um, so the oracle returns and says that he's a tyrant and he will be without an heir until that which is lost is found. His daughter's been taken away. To his mind, she's dead. So when the oracle comes back, it makes clear that Leontes is guilty. Um, and um, when he puts his wife in the tower, his son dies of grief. So he's lost his son. When the news comes back from the oracle, we get the news from Paulina that Hermione has died because she thinks her son is, he is dead. The, the, she's so grief-stricken at the news that her son is dead that she dies. So the son dies of grief. We're told that the queen dies of grief and Leontes has lost his daughter. So he's absolutely isolated. He's destroyed the royal family. There's no heir. Paulina comes to at that point and says, I don't want you to marry again until I tell you. It's the first time in his life that he's had to give up his power as a king, which is absolute, I mean, you know that if you know anything about the Tudor reign, and follow her directions. What she's doing that we learn later is she's going on the basis of the oracle. That, I want to underscore that. She's reading well. The oracle says, Leontes is a tyrant. He's lost his son, he's lost his wife, that which he's lost, um, he will not have an heir until that which is lost is found. The daughter's name is Perdita, from Perd, to remember. To, so um, what's lost is his daughter, and it won't be until she returns that he'll have an heir. That's her reading of the oracle. So for, um, we, we go to Polixenes' land and watch the girl grow up, She's a beautiful young woman. She falls in love with Polixenes' son. Um, there's a quarrel between father and son there, and they have to flee and come back to Sicily. So 16 years after she was abandoned, given up to death, she returns. 
So there's a reunion between father and daughter. So the oracle is coming true. So after 16 years now, it looks like there's going to be a promise of an heir. Paulina this entire time has told the king, I don't want you to marry until you, um, until I say so. What she's doing is an act of faith because she's basing her decision on what the oracle said. So the king, for the first time in his life, has had to give, him, give his will up to somebody else, and this is a commoner, and who's living her life according to a principle of faith. She's waiting on the oracle. She doesn't know. She didn't come in. All the lords pressure him for 16 years. I mean, imagine the pressure on Henry or any of the kings following him. Have an heir. Whatever good you're doing, it can't compare to the good you're giving up by, by not having an heir, because the kingdom is without an heir. We're going to die. So for 16 years, there's no heir. Um, his daughter returns. When she does, and the father and daughter are reunited, Paulina brings the king to this chapel and presents him to a statue of his wife, Hermione. He looks on her and she looks lifelike and he approaches her and it almost seems as if she's breathing. And as he approaches her, God, <laughs> he reaches out her hand to touch her and she reaches out her hand to touch them. Paulina has kept Hermione 18, alive 18 years waiting on the oracle. She, did, she couldn't do it because it wasn't up to her will. It's, it's a story about giving your will completely to God. And this is a king. Um, so the daughter and father are reunited and the husband and wife are reunited. It's one of the most extraordinary act, plays of forgiveness that I've ever read in my life. Um, that's one. In, um, in uh, Pericles, the other play, and the two belong to that period, a man goes to marry a woman, but he discovers a danger to himself when he does it and has to flee. Um, he, he's a king, he has to give up his kingdom and put, it in, put his lords in charge of it, and he spends the rest of his life in exile. When he leaves the land to flee this danger, he's with his wife, she's pregnant. He thinks that she's dead and throws her overboard, and um, it's, a, it's a sea burial, it's, I mean, it's appropriate. And um, he's without a wife and a daughter for, I can't, I don't remember the number of years, 16, 18 years. At one point in his wandering, he, he ends up at this regime because he goes to these different regimes. It's what really part of what the play is about, the, the different kinds of regimes that define our earthly existence. He's at this one regime and the young girl in front of him um, um, reminds him, it's, it's as if it awakens something in him. It turns out to be his daughter, Marina. Um, and he says this as he beholds her. Um, because both of them learned that they are father and daughter who've been lost for their lives. Um, and now they're reunited. I 
goodness. He looks at this young woman and he says, um, sorry. Gosh. Sorry, yeah, no, got it. He looks at the young woman and says this, um, full of wonder, struck with wonder, because it imag- imagine the moment um, that the, everything that you held most dear in your life is gone from you. And you spent the bo- better part of your life living without it, looking back to what you loved more than anything. He looks at the young woman, and, and there's a recognition scene in which they both know their father and daughter, and he says this to Marina. Thou that begettest him that did thee beget. He was father to her, but in seeing her, he's, she's begetting him. She's giving him a new life. Um, imagine if, if, we could, if we could experience something this side of heaven, and knowing that in heaven, everything that we'd lost had been given back to us except amplified, because things are going to be... Um, infinitely transformed there. I mean, that's the image we have from the transformation on the mount. So whatever it is we've loved here will be present there in a transformed in some glory. Paul said, I hath not seen, he hath not heard. Whatever is there is going to be far, far more beautiful, more radiant, full, full of being that it is here because mortality hangs over us. He looks at her and says, Thou that begettest him that did beget thee. He looks at her as given life to him in this moment when he was her father. And in that scene, he is, and this is the interesting thing, um, because this is, this is a, a, it's the fulfillment of a conversion moment. The, this poem that I'm about to read, Marie, is a conversion poem. It's, a, it's about a change in a person's life when they move from something towards something they've had a glimpse of, but they've not seen fully, okay? And I, anybody who's undergone a conversion, or had, a, even if you're, say, a Catholic, or, and, and have gone through conversions in your own life, something touches you and it changes you, you have a, something, a sense of something there. It's not completely realized. And you know it's changing you. You can't go back to the way you were. So anybody approaching those moments know that you look, you look at them in joy. You're glad because something's given to you. And you also look at them with some fear, some trepidation, because you're entering into a mystery with which you have no experience. You, or imagine, you, mo- you know Paul visited the third heaven. We have that from his writing. Imagine Paul coming back, having seen the third heaven and carrying that with him in whatever he did with the people that he worked with. So he was, he was not going to look at the world the way other people did. So there are these conversion moments that we experience in terms of a paradox. We're glad for them, but we're also frightened because they're going to ask of things of us. We're going to have to give up things that are familiar. So there's this combination of something very familiar with something very strange, and it's unsettling. Um, I want to come back to the Eucharist, but, but before I, because the Eucharist, to me, exemplifies that better than anything in the world. In this scene with his daughter, Pericles says this, Give me a gash, put me to present pain, lest this great sea of joys rushing upon me or bear the shores of my mortality. 
and drown me with their sweetness. He is so overcome with the moment that he says, somebody gash me, cut me, um, to, to bring me back to what I, what's real in my life because the moment is about to be overwhelming. You can imagine that. I mean, it's how frightening it is. But we know in this scene that he falls to sleep and in that sleep, in his dream, he hears the music of the spheres. I've said this to you all before. The music of the spheres is that um, harmony of God's order. We don't hear it on our bodies. Our bodies are mortal. They're suffering from corruption. They're, it can only be intellected, grasped by the mind. If you remember Dante, when Dante went up the spheres, he could hear it. Um, it started with Plato, it was carried forward in the Christian Middle Ages. It, um, we've lost a sense of it, sadly, with science. But, but remember, the music of the spheres is that music that, um, that's expressed in God's creation. It can't be otherwise. If God made this universe, there's a beauty and order to it. So according to that ancient theory, each one of the planets had a certain angelic order, all the nine orders. Each one had its own particular note. And in their rotations, they produced this harmony, this beauty. And it was so overwhelming that hearing it would bring you close to the harmony of God. In that moment, Pericles experiences the music of the spheres. He's the only character in all of literature that I'm aware of. I'm pretty certain of this. I mean, there may be, I, I mean, like, in my experiences, he's the only character who's ever heard the music of the spheres. So in this moment, there's this extraordinary overwhelming joy um, but touched with this sense of strangeness and fear cut me so it doesn't you know the, the words that I've just um, read so um, um, the play Pericles is about the reunion between a father and his daughter um, it's, it's almost impossible to think of Pericles seeing the daughter um, and his wife whom he's, I'm going to see in this scene and not feel everything that he's lost, um, and that it's all returned in this moment. Okay? That's the backstory for this poem. Now, in this poem, um, it, it's a poem about conversion. There's a sense of rebirth and regeneration in the speaker. Um, he's recalling his daughter but he's aware of something that he's seen. He's had a glimpse of something, some world. And it's, it's, um, he's bringing that back to this world to which he's returned, okay? So in the opening lines, you have the speaker recalling that world. And then in the middle lines, where he's talking about death, he's talking about the, all the things that would destroy that vision. And then he returns us to this condition, this paradoxical con condition he exists in, in which the, the familiar and the strange are brought together at once. Is that clear? Is that clear? Okay. The, the uh, epigram, the, the quote at the beginning um, from Latin is taken from Seneca's play on, now think about this, this is so crucial. Seneca's play on um, Heracles' madness, or Hercules' madness. In that play, Hercules wakes up. Here's, here's, this is so important. Shakespeare is take, taking us back to traditions. He's asking us to go back and carry these forward because if we, if we don't, we have no way of fully understanding what's going on in the present. So the quote from the Hercules plays is, um, are the words that Hercules expresses when he wakes up from a dream 
and he discovers he's killed his wife and children. Okay? So the head note of this is about a man who wakes up from a dream to a horror. He's just killed his children. In the Pericles poem, we're, we're in the mind, the heart of a man who's awakened from his dream, this great glory, um, and his recovering something in the daughter he's lost. So there will be in, in, um, in Pericles a sense of what's strange and familiar brought together in an extraordinary kind of peace, even though there's some fear in it. Um, it's in contrast to what happened to Hercules. Is that clear? Any, so Shakespeare is asking us to hold both of those things together. I mean, sorry, Italy is asking us to hold both those things together. Okay? Marina by Eliot. What seas, what shores, what gray rocks, and what islands, what water lapping the bow. So we're on a journey. This man is on a boat um, and can't find the words to describe um, what what he's had some hint of in his mind. What seas, what shores, what gray rocks, and what islands, but water lapping the bow, and scent of pine and the wood thrush singing through the fog. What images return, O oh, my daughter? Those who sharpen the tooth of the dog, meaning death. Those who glitter with the glory of the hummingbird, meaning death. Those who sit in the sty of contentment, meaning death. Those who suffer the ecstasy of the animals, meaning death. So he's just given us four ways of the world whose ultimate end is death. Those who sharpen the tooth of the dog, that is, those are violent, those who are violent. Those who glitter with the glory of the hummingbird, that is, those people who are too preoccupied with their accomplishments that say, look at me, look at the beauty of what I've got. Those who sit in the sty of contentment, those who are self-satisfied, who, are, who sit in the pride of their own self-sufficiency and can bask there. Those who suffer the ecstasy of the animals, that is, those who live by their sensations, their lusts, their animal desires. Um, so, from the first section, he goes on, Oh, my daughter, those who sharpen the tooth of the dog, meaning death, those who glitter with the glory of the hummingbird, meaning death, those who sit in the sty of contentment, meaning death, those who suffer the ecstasy of the animals, meaning death are become insubstantial, reduced by a wind, a breath of pine, and the woodsong fog by this grace dissolved in place. This grace that has become a part of his world now. What is this face, less clear and clearer, the pulse in the arm, less strong and stronger, given or lent, more distant than stars and nearer than the eyes, Christ in his daughter, his daughter, given Lent, um, both familiar and strange, close and far away, whispers and small laughter between leaves and hurrying feet under sleep where all the waters meet, bowsprit cracked with ice and paint cracked with heat, I made this, I have forgotten and remember, the rigging weak and the canvas rotten between one June and another September made this unknowing half-conscious, unknown, my own. The garbage stake, strake, leaks, the seams need talking. This form, this face, this life, 
living to live in a world of time beyond me. Let me resign my life for this life, my speech for that unspoken, the awakened lips parted, the hope, the new ships, all that he hopes for, the moving towards. What seas, what shores, what granite islands towards my timbers, and wood thrush calling through the fog. My daughter. Imagine a father growing up with a girl, seeing her run through the leaves and then losing her, whatever it is, and reaching a point in his life where he sees grace dis- diffused, dispersed everywhere, and learning to see the thing before him. Imagine Paul, the very familiar persons that he had worked with, and yet beginning to see them in terms of what he had seen in the, let's say, in the third heaven. So this is Eliot's uh, marina. And I'm reading it now because it, I mean, so much of what's going on in Murder in the Cathedral is like what's going on here. It's a very different poem, but it, it, it has to do with what we're doing in this world and, um, and whether we're standing in, in relation to the next world, um, the way that we've been asked to. So let me stop. Any questions about Marina? We can take a few minutes. But Any, Julie, this must seem strange to you. Uh, Do you want? <laughs> then it's time for me to be quiet. Any questions about Marina or Pericles or? We are in August company. No, Gita. Hard for me to ask you any questions because I'm very slow at processing. So I have to really, I mean, that's why I loved going back to school and telling her <laughs> stuff because it would kind of cement my understanding yeah. a little better. Yeah. Um, there's so much stuff that you say, um, but so, they're very profound. So for me, I can't, I'm just taking it in, I'm, but I'm not really. It takes it, it takes me some time to really think and I think it does all of us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that I can, you know, use it in some way. I hope I'm I'm so glad um, you said that. I've said this before to everybody. T. S. Eliot himself by the way, wait, Eliot said for a modern poem, what remind me about the Eucharist. If I forget, get me back in a minute, please, because I'm Eliot said um, that for a, a a modern poem to be good it had to be difficult because he knew that we were living in a post-Christian age, that our ties to the past were gone. He knew that he was speaking to a non-Christian audience. So he had to find a voice with which to speak to this non-Christian audience and still reveal or present our world as it is and still present mysteries. Because in our mind, we want everything literally before us. And we know that that's not the case. I mean, it just never is. So um, that was a serious thing for me. I, I don't think this is an easy poem to read. If you read it the first time and you don't have any help, you're going to come away from it and say, are you kidding? Um, and throw it in the trash can. I mean, it just won't speak to you. But if you begin to put it together, you'll look at it and think, holy cow, in some ways it's so representative. It has to be of somebody in a conversion mode, what I mean, 
undergoing a conversion because he's aware of something not yet. He's carrying something familiar and it disorients him. So he's got parts of his life that are real. He can't, pull to, he can't put them together in any complete way. Eliot said, this is a principle of his, um, a, a poem's going to A poem's going to make you feel things that you're not going to understand right away. And it's important that you open to the feelings of them because that feeling will hopefully take you to an understanding. The modern mind is just the reverse. If you know anything about the modern mind, you know that we live in our heads. It's Cartesian. What Descartes said is we know clear, clear and distinct our ideas. That's what our mind grasps. Elliot, couldn't, I couldn't disagree with that. Neither could I. We, we want everything to be clear in our head. Because we think if, if we've got clarity in our mind, we've got control over it, if we understand something. Eliot's saying that very often a poem will awaken feelings and you'll know things through feelings that your mind won't readily glance. I believe that of kids. If you watch kids grow, you know, we're, I'm so aware of what our own grandchildren. I'm watching, I mean, I, I have no qualms about presenting something to them that I know they won't understand. My hope is that they will feel something long before they understand it. We, we took our daughter, Evie, her granddaughter Evie, to see the, was it the last fellowship of the Return of the King, or it's the one in where the dwarf gets killed, I can't remember which one that was. She wept, she cried, so did I. It was The Hobbit. The Hobbit? I'm so glad she went, because I really wanted her to feel that. You know, that's an that's a epic undertaking. Just for her to cry was such a healthy sign for me, because I knew she'd, if she could cry at that, her heart would be in the right place long before she understood the implications of it. You know. So Eliot himself was, was clear on saying that it's really important to, to do something to help open the heart long before your mind can ever get to it. Let me go back to the Eucharist because I don't forget this. I've said this over and over again because this poem reminds me of it. I've asked this to our class again and again. When you take the Eucharist and you believe it's the real presence of Christ, and you walk into the, you walk out of the church into the, um, the parking lot. Where are you? I mean, I'm sort of laughing at everybody and all of us, but it's a way of illustrating the point. When we take the Eucharist and we walk out into the parking lot and go home, where are we? Because when you take the Eucharist, you take Christ in you. You're in His kingdom. That's a participation in His divine life. We're here in the world. I remember Suzanne, um, I don't know if it was somebody she spoke to or the, the story of some guy who I think was Islam, Islamic, who heard from a Catholic what the meaning of the Eucharist was. And the, the Islamic guy said, he didn't believe him. He said, I don't believe what you're saying because if, what, if you believed what you just said, when you went up to take the Eucharist, you would prostrate yourself before God before you'd receive it because your devotion would be so complete. How many people take the Eucharist today as a matter of habit? But so it raises this question, if we take God into us, Christ, and he's within us, it means we're one with him in his kingdom. When we go out in the parking lot, where are we? And it's very much like this poem. You know, do, do we really allow us to stand in a place aware that the greater part of what's going on in our life is a mystery? 
In the modern world, I'd say no, because in the modern world, we want to use our minds to control everything. So this poem is about this strange in-between time. Um, a father being reunited with his daughter, aware of everything familiar, you know, which she would have done running through the leaves as a child, and being reunited with her here in this moment um, of grace. Okay? No questions? Okay, let's. Sorry, I don't have one of those stands, and I'm not used to these glasses, so. God. Um, okay, just a very, very quick review. Last week, when we met, um, and by the way, all these audios are on, you all know that they're online. If you go on to Lit is Prophecy, so if you missed last week and you want to go back, it actually, it's not up yet, but it'll it'll be up soon. But they're all there. Um, Eventually, huh? <laughs> Eventually, they'll be there. <laughs> um, remember that um, Eliot was aware, like James Joyce and some of the greater poets of that early part of the century, that I mean, in, because science had so taken over the way that we looked at things and modern philosophies idealist Descartes and Kant and others, put us in our heads and disconnected us from the world and our bodies. And um, because traditions were being done away with, um, people were disoriented. They didn't know what they were doing, where they were going, or how or why. And Joyce Eliot was beginning to write this poetry, and at the same time, even though they weren't working together, Joyce had written this novel called Ulysses. It's a, it's a modern epic. But what he's doing is basing his story in modern Dublin, Catholic Dublin, on Homer's The Odyssey. So, and the hero is not Odysseus, it's a modern Jew, Leopold Bloom, in, in Catholic Ireland. So it's full of ironies. Um, but it's very literal in its representation of, of uh, Dublin. Things are exactly on the page as they are in reality. And we follow this man through a 12-hour journey you know, through this life. And every one of the chapters is modeled on one of Homer's chapters in the Odyssey. And Eliot's essay on that um, was to um, commend Joyce because he said, Joyce has found a way of ordering the chaos of the modern world. It's by returning to myths and tradition um, to find a help in them to make our way in the world. Because without them, we're lost. Virtually is what's going on. So in all of his works, we find ourselves going back. Prufrock did it. If you if you remember Prufrock, he talked comparing himself to John the Baptist. We just passed the it was the, the mass this weekend. Um, so in this play, we can hear echoes of um, Aeschylus's trilogy, the Oresti, the first great works of drama in Western civilization. And in, in the trilogy, Aeschylus is dealing with the curse on the house of Atreus. When Agamemnon comes home, his wife and lover kill him. That's the first play. In the middle play, his son Orestes has got to avenge his father's death, so he kills his mother. And the third play ends with the Furies haunting him. You can imagine the psychological effects of killing your mother. And um, a, a, or a, Athena 
and um, all of them going to a trial in which the, the Furies are set off against Apollo and Athena and a reconciliation is achieved. Orestes is led off um, and what happens is in that play, that third play, Athens comes into existence. And Athens sets itself apart from all the other cities. We know this from the um, Oedipus Rex, all of them, Thebes. We did it in Chaucer, if you remember the, um, the Knight's Tale. Remember that Theseus had just come from Thebes because Thebes was the noble city. It, it, it was too noble. Um, and that kind of nobility ends up being inhuman and harmful to people. So Athens comes into existence in that play. It becomes the just city. It's the, be it's, it's the beginning of what we know today as a democracy. It sets itself apart from all the regimes in the world. Eliot's going back to all those. He's going back to Aeschylus, the curse on the house. We constantly talk about the curse on the house here, the cathedral, the curse that's coming back. Um, um, Boe or Boethius is here. The constant references to the wheel. Remember the wheel is the turning wheel with the center still point. It's one of the most important images of this play. Um, it's things like that that show Eliot bringing the past with him, working with it. In Thomas Beckett, he's going back to the 12th century to deal with the, with the martyrdom of Thomas Beckett. Um, one of the most important themes of this play is what I would call, you know that I've been talking about this forever, the, this way of reading. But the, the, the way of reading takes a particular form. We can name it the palimpsest. If you don't know what a palimpsest is, a palimpsest is a page in a text that gets rubbed out and it gets replaced with your own writing. So it carries within it layered other text prior to it, buried text. So um, even though it's overwritten, it has contained within it text from pe previous ages. So um, one of the more important things that's going on here is the way in which Eliot presents people in, um, to raise questions of whether they're really bearing the past with them. These are all Christians, they're all Catholics. Um, how, how good are they at carrying Christ's life, particularly his crucifixion, into the present moment? Um, it's, it's a major theme of the work. Um, we talked about the structure of the, of the work, that is divided into two sections. Both of them are in the archbishops, um, it's not the, it's the palace. First and second parts, they're divided by that interlude. In the second part, remember, it starts in the, or the archbishop's palace, but it goes to the, to the cathedral, and it's in the cathedral that Beckett is killed. I've suggested that Eliot, I think, in some ways is, is suggesting the mass. There are um, prayers that take us to the, end scene and the the sacrificial scene takes place in the cathedral itself so we're in we're in the church where the martyrdom takes place the language is formal and i think it's meant to be oracular there's a sense of something um, prophetic um, holy going on in what's taking place in the whole play and the, lang the language is formal. It's not colloquial. If it were colloquial, we'd be back in the world too much. He's, he's presenting us with a world that we're, that we're familiar with,
but he's using a language that distances us from it. It's very formal, because there's actually an oracular quality to it. Um, so one of the questions that I asked last week when we went over the first part of the play is, um, where are the characters in relation to time? Um, are they carrying the past with them? Are they really living their faith? And that was especially important because you know that the, um, three of the characters were priests. Um, and we looked at the priests and each one of them was different. One was very practical oriented, one kept looking for assurances, and one was very hard-headed and realistic. Very different priests. The tempters, if you recall, um, represented different temptations for Thomas. The first tempter was, um, was appealing to Thomas's love of um, er earthly, worldly goods. They're the same goods that, um, that um, Boethius talks about in Consolation. And we talked about them. Do you remember what they are? What are they? Wealth, power, lust, and fame. Hmm? Fame. Yep. Yeah. They were wealth, power, fame, and pleasure. Not lust, but all pleasure. So. Remember that, wealth, how many people are given to wealth, because they assume with it they're going to have power. Power to do what you want. Image, reputation, the way people look at you, and pleasures, um, whatever they are. Each one of the um, tempters represents a, a different body of temptations to Thomas. The first one represents those. The second one appeals to the power that he has as a chancellor. And he said, if you go back to have that, you'll gain that. What was the, the, the phrase he used that, um, that he was describing? He said, something now and holiness later. Do you remember, Doc, what it was? And the power now and holiness later. He was saying, put it off put it off, um, that what he wanted to do is to get Beck, Beckett to re re recover the power that he has as chancellor and make that his aim. Part of the problem here is that Beckett was chancellor for a number of years and then he was made archbishop and when he was made archbishop, Henry wanted him to hold on to the chancellorship because he, it would give him control over him. When Beckett became archbishop, he resigned. And then the two of them began to quarrel because at that point Beckett began to serve the church more than Henry. The, the basis of the quarrel was that Henry wanted to keep control over the clergy. There were cases that needed to be trial and the Pope wanted to have control over the clergy because they were clergy and Henry didn't want to give it up because he wanted, he wanted to control the clergy. Um, so Beckett fled to England. Um, there were difficulties between the two kings. Um, Henry threatened the orders, Beckett's orders, and um, the Pope intervened and sent a, delegate, a delegation to uh, England hoping to reconcile the differences. So Beckett returns, um, and it, um, we know what happens then when he returns, he's going to be. Um, Henry's claim was that he undermined the authority of the king and so should be punished. Um, those were the, the, oh, the, the third tempter. The third tempter was saying, tempting Beckett to use his power 
with the Pope to get the Pope to limit the power of the king and the, and the lords. Because if the, if the power of the king and the lords were uh, minimized, this man could benefit from it. And the last tempter was the, um, the gravest, you remember, and he's the one who actually uses Beckett's words. What he's appealing to is Beckett's love of martyrdom. Um, and remember the, the, the really pointed lines are those lines in which he says, um, the greatest temptation is to do the right thing for the wrong reason. And the point there is that the gravest temptation he will face is, is accepting martyrdom, but for the wrong reason. And we talked about that. Um, anybody wanna, what's the wrong reason? Nikki, what would be the wrong reason? Sorry? Doing something just for yourself. Yeah. Yourself. Yeah, for your pride. The great temptation for him was to do it as a way of exalting his own pride. And that's where we left it, okay? So, um, in one sense, each one of the tempters ref is a reflection of something going on inwardly in Beckett that we don't see. They make visible something that's invisible to us, these temptations that he's facing. And, um, and he overcomes them, God. and um, we left it with this, and this is where I want to return and then pick up with the second part. Um, go to page 40. Um, remember this place that um, we were looking at in Marina and if you go back where did we first where did we first encounter the apophatic together as a group was it that's right and a, a year ago when we did Elias Four Quartets we talked about the apophatic. The apophatic is knowing something by its absence. We know something by what we don't know about it. And if you remember Anthony and Cleopatra when we did it, remember that the, the, when Anthony and Cleopatra make their stage entrance, Cleopatra says, tell me how much. So we know by that line that Anthony has just said off stage, out of our hearing, I love you. We don't hear that. And I think that's not an accident in Shakespeare's part. At the end of that exchange, when, she's, um, when she says, um, put a limit on it, he says, it will take a new heaven and a new earth to express the love I feel for you. Those are straight from Revelation. Okay, so Shakespeare's, a, I believe he's Catholic looking back, but he, he's writing um, about a story in history that took place just before Christ came. And Anthony is using words taken from Revelation will take a new heaven and a new earth. So both of those lines, opening and closing, are expressions of the apophatic, what's not known yet. Is that clear? Cleopatra says, tell me how much. We don't even know what he said. Not, we don't hear, except we know by their absence that what he just said is, I love you. What Shakespeare's showing us is that kind of love has not come into the world yet. It's about to come. So when we were doing Anthony and Cleopatra, I was trying to suggest all the ways in which 
these people are making this withdrawal. They're all withdrawing from this world. Something's about to come, and Shakespeare knows it. And Anthony and Cleopatra are entering into that strange kind of love that the Romans don't know. So the apophatic is a way of knowing by what's not known. Uh, it's, you can call it the way of negation. It's the way, it's the way of most mystics. One of the ways of getting to God is by putting away the world. Get rid of all things here so that we can come to know him. So we get moments of the apophatic everywhere in this play. The tempter says, you know and do not know what it is to act or suffer. You know and do not know that action is suffering and suffering action. You know and don't know. I put this differently. Do we know it the way Christ did? Absolutely not. Christ was God. He was innocent. Um, he took on our body to go through suffering. We all know it. But do we know it the way he did? Neither does the agent suffer nor the patient act, but both are fixed in an eternal action, an eternal patience to which all must consent that it may be willed, and which all must suffer that they may will it, that the pattern may subsist that the wheel may turn and still be forever still. Remember, there's that image from Boethius of the world turning the wheel. Remember, there were two concepts that he was putting together. One was fate and the other was providence. Fate is an expression of all those things are caught up in the world. They're so caught up that they almost lose their own wills, their free will. They just get moved by the wheel. They're close to the circumference. At the center, even though everything's moving around, at the center is still. That's a geometric fact. Okay, the farther away from the center you get, the faster the wheel goes. The closer to the center you get, the more things quiet. That was an image of the difference between fate and providence, between what the world does and what God does. So one of the important images here is the turning of that wheel, events coming, and people being caught up in them. But here the tempter is saying, um, both are fixed in an eternal action, eternal patience, to which all must consent that it may be willed, and which all must suffer that they may will it, that the pattern may subsist, that the wheel may turn and still be forever still. Any questions? And I would be glad for questions because I don't think that's an easy, or any comments. Or anybody who wants to make an effort to understand it. <laughs> We've done this, but this is a tough line. Nikki. No. I got nothing. <laughs> don't say that. I don't believe that. I've known you for a long time. That's the first time I've ever heard you say a lie. <laughs> you take that home to your son for me. You are full of goodness. Karen, can you make a stab at Doc, do you want to? Come on. I just think, as I told you earlier, that what interests me about, about what too the hot. tempter's... Yeah. You guys okay? What the tempter says is that it's a quote of Thomas. Um, so. Thomas understands this. The tempter isn't giving him anything new. But explain the line. Th those lines are... Well, the pattern may subsist, but the wheel Well, may before, the lead-up, that when he says, both are fixed to an eternal action, an eternal patience to which 
an eternal patience to which all must consent that it may be willed and which all must suffer that they may will it. Is this a denial of free will? On the surface, it looks like it. What's he saying? The, by the way, Suzanne's right. That Eliot had spoken these words earlier. It's on page... Not Eliot. Or I mean... Uh, Thomas. Thomas, on page 31. But 21. Here are the... T- tw- 20... <laughs> tw- Keep them straight. <laughs> Sorry. She does, she does not need your encouragement. <laughs> He's got a note in here that says page 21. Or, yes, page 21. I can't read my writing. Is this a denial of free will? No. Go. Well, it says to which all must consent that it may be willed. To me, that sounds the opposite of. Explain it. Can you put it in your own words? Let me see if I can help for a second. What is the one thing we know all of us can't escape in this life? Death. Death, yeah, right. I would have included sin, but I just wanted death, yeah? Um, According to our belief, we believe that the eternal pattern for everything in life was fixed by Christ. Okay? That the Muslims have it wrong, the Jews have it wrong, the Zoroastrians, whoever you want to that God came down, took on our nature in order to atone for his sin. That's our belief. And that's eternal, it's unchanging. So the pattern of life for us was set by Christ. The God, the God who loved us in creating us took on our nature and went to a cross to atone for, a, to help achieve, recover a divine justice lost. We sinned against God. We offended his justice. No human could pay for that. We couldn't recover that justice. Only a God could. So in order to do that, to keep us from being damned, the Son took on a nature, because it was in our nature that we sinned, and took it to a cross. So he, he answered a divine justice by bringing to it a divine love that humans couldn't. So the, the pattern for us is to work for justice. Every reading, every week, every reading, every day, the Old Testament is reading is justice. That's the Father. The, the, the New Testament is the Son. Is the Son ever going to do something contrary to the Father? No. No. So what Christ did was reconcile, answer that justice by the love that he brought to it. But the pattern is to... to um, to work to achieve justice in the world and bring a love to it that the world doesn't know. Whatever that asks of us. Yeah? That's a pattern. So the, the question is, will we, will we enter into it? And the divine patience, the, you know, the, the, the love that... Wait, by the way, does that deny God's free will? No, because every one of us, the circumstances for each one of us is different. We can reject it or choose it or, to, you know, but but we still have the will to do one or the other. Um, so I don't think it's a denial of free will, but I think if, if I'm understanding this, because it's so, you know, it's a little bit enigmatic on it, to which all must consent that it may be willed, so that our giving our wills to God, the eternal pattern, so that he can will it. He's already willed it. 
question is, will it involve our will? Will we give our wills to it? What will we do? Thomas is facing that problem in every scene in this story. What's he going to do? And more, more importantly, with what motives? For pleasure? For his own ego? With what inside of him will he go on to this martyrdom? That's the great question of the play. For the right reason or the wrong reason? To all which must consent that it may be willed and which all must suffer that they may will it. That we can participate in the suffering, willed it ourselves. That is to go to the cross with Christ. That the pattern may subsist, that the wheel may turn and still be forever turning. That whatever goes on in the world will continue to go on. Will we be moving towards that still point in what we're doing or not? Is that okay? Is that? Nikki, is that okay? Yes. Okay. Um, what? I said I got that much. Okay. <laughs> okay. Um, it's so overwhelming. It's so interesting. I just sit. Should I stop? I don't want to overwhelm. Do I? Should I cut you? Here. To me, it's overwhelming too. I mean, just so you know, this stuff. I'm. I'm just in awe of what Elliot does. Um, I want to just read from the chorus again to just rope because because remember the chorus is going to speak now, and then um, Thomas will follow it, and it leaves us with a question. So at this point, remember this is December second, so we're a couple of weeks off from Christmas, a few weeks off from his martyrdom. But the chorus responds and says, "We have not been happy, my lord. We have not been too happy. Where we are, are not." Robert, where are you? Page forty-three. We are not ignorant women. We know what we must expect and not expect. We know of pressure, of oppression and torture. We know, that is, they know all these things in the world, destitution, disease, our labor taken away. They've lost jobs, our sins made heavier. They know all of that. We've seen young men mutilated, the torn girl trembling. Meanwhile, we've gone on living and watched the, here's this in-between city again, living and partly living. That is how, how, Fully has the course entered into a sacramental life. Gathering faggots at nightfall, building a partial shelter for sleeping, eating, drinking, laughter. Now, God gave us always some reason, some hope, but now a new terror has soiled us, which none can avert, none can avoid, flowing under our feet and over the sky. 44. Under doors and down chimneys, flowing in at the ear and the mouth and the eye, God is leaving us. God is leaving us. More pang, more pain than birth or death. Sweet and cloying through the dark air falls the shift, stifling scent of despair. The forms take shape in the dark air. Pusper of leopard, footfall of padding bear, palm pad of nodding ape, square hyena waiting for laughter, laughter, laughter. The lords of hell are here. They curl round you, lie at your feet. Swing and wing through the dark air. O Thomas Archbishop, save us, save us. Save yourself that we may be saved. Destroy yourself, we're destroyed. And then Thomas responds, now is my way clear. Now is the meaning plain. Um, he talks on 45, he says, he distinguishes between the man who serves a king and then goes on to say, for those who serve the greater cause may make the greater the cause serve them. It goes to it. Nikki said that the danger Thomas faces is taking a holy office and use it for himself to make it serve him for any worldly. 
But he ends up saying then on um, um, the bottom of 45, I know that history at all times draws the strangest consequence from remotest cause. But for every evil, every sacrilege, crime, wrong, oppression, and the axis edge, indifference, exploitation, you and you and you must all be punished. So must you. I shall no longer act or suffer to the sword's end. Now my good angel, whom God appoints, to be my guardian, hover over the sword's points. Now two things before we get past where we were last week. The women say, the chorus... We, we have not been happy. We have not been too happy. We've experienced all these things. But then they said, God gave us always some reason, some hope. But now a new terror has soiled us. What's changed? What are they facing now? What is what, is what Thomas is facing doing to change the way everybody else is experiencing the world? In this case, the chorus but now a new terror has soiled us, which none can avert, none can avoid, flowing under our feet and over the sky, goes on. God is leaving us, God is leaving us. The lords of hell are here, they curl around us. Remember, in the beginning of the book, the, the chorus is saying, Thomas, Thomas, go back, go back, go back. They wanted nothing to do with this. They were frightened because of what they face. And we've been hearing from them all along, they're, they're expressing, the chorus is always an expression of the ordinary man, status quo. They always express what most people feel. And here they're saying, they've experienced all this, death, sickness, illness, oppression, loss of jobs. Mm-hmm. But now they say, a new terror has come upon us. What's happened? What's What are they facing now that, because of what Thomas is going through, that they've never faced before? Persecution. Go ahead. Persecution. Except we know, I mean, Thomas is even going to say to this, the priest is going to get really angry at the priest when they say the priest get out of here. Um, He says, they're not coming for you, they're coming for me. And the priest keeps saying, danger, danger, and he says, if my will's okay, I'm not in danger. He believes nobody else is. They're just after him. So. Fear death. Hmm? Fear death. I don't. It's hard for me to make that it because when he came, I don't know, I don't know if you've read it all, but when he came, they said go back because they knew they. But here, you know. After all, after all that we've gone through, the dealings with the priests, the dealing with the tempters, um, the chorus is coming in and saying, now there's something, we've, we've experienced death and all this stuff before. Now, there's some new terror. Wasn't he away, right? That's what if he what? Wasn't he, he was away, Thomas, and then he came back. Right. So while he was gone, Whatever it's the spiritual life of those people went downhill. Right, right. But now he's coming back, and they're very excited about it. He even says that. I mean, so he when, comes back, and he's—they're all 
excited, and but then they realize that he's not really coming back to stay. He's. <laughs> but what's the new terror? Well, is is it more than the realization that now what they had kind of they went through all the hardship, but they kind of thought they had hope there, and now they find out that even their hope is gone. Yeah. You know, like the apostles when they were like, "Hey, we're totally excited." Yeah. He says yeah, he's and then they die. Yeah. And then they're left all alone to do about? everything. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. And then the spirit comes in. And yeah. They strengthen up, but yeah, they felt that, that their whole world was coming to an end yeah. at that point, didn't they? They, they he even, wait one second, Doug. Just he even <clears> says that because when um, he's told to go back, when the um, knights come and. and and plead their or present their case. Um, they say go back, um, and Tom says I won't go back. I've been away seven years. My flock has been without me. They need me, um, and so he refuses to comply with Henry again. Right in the midst of this ordeal that's unfolding, that that doesn't look good for him and anybody. But sorry, Doc. Go. I don't know that they know what the terror is. I mean, it's it's different. They've experienced death and and life and. Um, Sorry, Doug. Go ahead. I'm. I mean, so Thomas has been gone for seven years, and life has gone on, and they've experienced um, all the things that they've said before. You know, um, oppression and. And all that kind of stuff. But that's all. That's all known evil. They know that. What's happening now? I don't know that they even know what the evil is. Yeah. They just know. I mean, they've gotten about animal forms. Um, it's flowing in the air, going through their ears right. and their mouth. Right. And all of that, and then we've got the leopard and the bear and the nodding ape and the laughing hyena. All of that is is sort of a new, nameless terror. Or think, deeper too. Yeah, I don't yeah. think they know exactly what the terror is. They they say the land, the lords of hell are here. They curl. Doc's you know quoting those lines where they're. I mean, it's just it it is everywhere. It's in the air. It's yellow and tasteful. I mean, it, they can't escape it. The question that I have is um, is is whether a martyrdom doesn't more immediately deal with evil directly. They've experienced in all these other losses. They're a commonplace of the world. You, 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 all of us suffer them. Loss of a job, broken leg, struggles in the family. I mean, whatever it is, they know. But something's happened, a new terror. And they talk about it in terms of Lords of the Hill. Heliot doesn't make this any more direct than he does here, particularly in the lines that you're talking about. It just makes me wonder if martyrdom as an event doesn't take us back to the cross, because it does, I mean that link is going to be made explicit in a second, and more immediately involve evil directly. And however much they could have gone, or, or generalized, or, or made abstractions about evil in their life before, it would have been a word. Now, it's becoming a part of their life. They're witness, they're directly involved in a martyrdom. Mm -hmm. That's beyond anything else that's happened. 
It's like evil is directly insinuating itself as a force in the world, and it can't escape it. Let's go to the interlude. Um, can you turn to... Wait, by the way, are, how do you take Thomas's words when he says, so you, 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 and you must all be punished, so must you, I shall no longer act or suffer to the sword's end. Now my good angel, whom God appoints to be my guardian, hover over the sword's points. Can anybody paraphrase that? Because it seems to me, you know, he, he's listened to all the tempters. The chorus says, God gave us some reason, some hope, but now, and then t- after the chorus speaks, Thomas says, now is my way clear, now is the meaning playing. And he goes through his reasoning. you come to that line where he says, for those who serve the greater cause may make the cause serve them. He's aware of the danger to him of taking his office and even taking a martyrdom for the wrong reason. And then he has that line where he says um, um, to do the right to do the right deed for the wrong reason. How do you understand this end when he says, So must you, I shall no longer act or suffer to the sword's end. Now my good angel whom God appoints to be my guardian, hover over the sword's points. Sword's point, that's that's a sharp end. Um, that's, that's not good. <laughs> He's gonna die. Yeah, it? that's what foreshadowing or something. Nikki, what do you how do you read it? I shall no longer act. Sorry, Karen, go ahead. It sounds like he's decided it's not. uh, He's he's taken the good road, and so he doesn't have to suffer because he knows the right way. And that God's going to send an angel to protect him from the points of the spear. Yeah, because he says he's made up his mind what he's going to do. And it's right. Yeah. And he's like, okay, I made my peace with it, (laughs) as it were. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a strange thing. I mean, it really is a... It's hard to imagine um, a killing that doesn't involve suffering. But there's something in his soul... I mean, the word... He's made his peace with it. Um, Hover over the sword's point as if God's blessing will be in it somehow. He's not doing this for the wrong reason. He's given his will over to God at this point. Let me summarize... What's, I think, I mean, if I can put this simply, if you look at all the priests, because none of the priests stepped forward during this whole thing. I mean, they, they, they're, they're performing courtesy. He's gone. He's been gone for seven years. He comes back. It's interesting to watch the priest's response. In the next scene, we're going to see the priest trying to get him out of there. Right. By the way, it remind, for those of you who've done the, the Iliad, it reminds me of that time when uh, Priam tempts um, Achilles. And Achilles gets furious at him because Achilles knows he has a prophecy to fulfill. He's got to carry through with it. And I've suggested that that's, that's a, um, a foreshadowing of Christ when Christ gets angry at Peter. Because remember when Peter says... Um, Let's stay here. Let's, you know, let's, yeah. And, and is, do you remember Christ's response? Yeah. Get away from me, get, Satan. Get behind me, Satan. Yeah. That is, Peter doesn't know it, but, he, but he's, yeah. he's actually... 
doing what, what humans would want to do. They would want to spare Protect, the yes. man they love. Okay. Christ knows he's going to his death. And so the greatest temptation Christ, I mean, you could say it's from Satan in the desert. This is a serious temptation. Peter's going to him because he loves him. And um, says, don't do it. And Christ says, get behind me. Well, he didn't really know at that point fully. What he yeah, was. doesn't even know when Christ... But, <laughs> but the point here is that there, there comes a point when... When... I don't know how to... Something that has to be, if somebody accepted, enters into it, making their peace with it, giving their will. They consent to it. They give their will to something. And in that enter more closely into Christ's life. So, in, in put, it to, put it simply, with everything we've been watching, we've been watching everybody in the book, including Thomas up to a point, defining their lives in terms of intermediate ends. Your job, your politics. Because if that's what you live for, if that's what defines your life, when that becomes at risk, you give in and you do it. You don't want to lose your job, you don't want to displease your king, you don't want to displease your boss your family, whatever it is. So you're making an intermediate thing an end. When according to holy things, that's a means to another end. The question is whether you're living your life according to final ends. We talked about that with we did Dante because the whole point of the Divine Comedy, remember, was to take us to final ends. And once we enter into the modern world and we no longer have a sacramental sense of the world, our whole life is, is, a, is making compromises with the world because we don't want to give it up. What we've been watching and seeing after scene after scene is people living in that intermediate world and being frightened at the thought that somebody will come in and do something to shatter it. Is that clear? Because it's just, to me, it's absolutely crucial. And it's at this point, I think the chorus is sensing something's about to happen that introduces them to a terror they've not had to deal with before. And Thomas, at this point, sees clearly his way. He knows at this point what he has to do. And it can't be for all those intermediate things. He gave that up when he resigned his chancellorship and became archbishop. And it's that act that's put him in that disposition now. So that's where we are at the close of the first half. Is that okay? Is there Okay, in, can we go on? Do you have any questions? Mm-hmm. Want to stop and take a break for wine? Or meatballs? <laughs> Ask me if I want to. Julie, feel free to get up and... Oh, I'm great. Okay, okay. Because there's wine and... Gita, can I ask a favor? Bless your soul. Thanks. Can you turn to the interlude? Thanks. Can you turn to the interlude? Thomas is giving a homily on Christmas morning, and I just I just want to go over. Um, instead of reading, I'd just like to go over a couple of points and then go on to the second half. He's making the point, which is so crucial, thanks. He's making the point that every day um, a Mass is offered. And in that Mass, what's celebrated is Christ's death. 
So when people enter a mass, the, it, the, everything that goes on in the mass moves towards the Eucharist. The receiving the, the actual presence of Christ, the body and blood, the living. That's our belief. That by taking that him into us, he's helping us to heal our sins, to put them away. And for that, it's not a once in a lifetime done. It's not, I'm saved. It's, it's moving with Christ. So even if we carry our sins, we're still struggling to put them away with his help. That's why we go to confession. Here, Thomas is making the point that every mass takes us um, to a point in the mass where we celebrate Christ's death. On Christmas morning, we've entered into a mass in which we're celebrating both his birth and his death. And that presents with us with something that nobody else in the world does because we're asked to, to feel a complete sorrow for the loss of our God and a joy at his birth because he came into this world to save us. So the depth of those emotions go to their extremes, absolute joy, absolute sorrow. And we're asked to hold both of them together. Um, that's the heart of his homily. Um, on page 48, he says, reflect now how our Lord himself spoke of peace. Um, he said to his disciples, my peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. He goes on to make clear that the peace that Christ offers us is not the peace of the world. Because if we've been attentive, we know that the peace of the world is, have my job, get a salary. We're here to wealth, power, fame, pleasure. In the face of losing any of those, we don't want to give them up. All of us, addiction isn't the word, but those are, by the way, those are not evils. We, we're, we're not Protestants. We do not believe the world is inherently evil. We believe those are natural goods. Wealth is a good thing. Power is a good thing. Um, reputation is a good thing. Pleasure is a good thing. The problem is that because we make them so important and get so attached to them, we begin making compromises in whatever call Christ has made of us. So, so the peace that Christ offers is not the peace of the world, having all of those things. And we don't know, can any, beyond the generalization that Eliot's made about this pattern in the steel point, the steel point at the center, how easy is it for any of us to know in our particular circumstances what Christ wants of us? We're looking at a man who's being called to a martyrdom in what way is any of us in our particular lives being called to a cross, to suffer how we go through things, to be with him? So he's making the point that the peace that Christ offers is not the peace of the world. It, it draws us into his life and asks things of us. Um, and we've been watching the effects of that play out in the first half of the play and what the priests say and what the tempters say. Um, on page 48, beloved, we do not think of a martyr simply as a good Christian who's been killed because he's a Christian, for that would be solely to mourn. Because lots of Christians are gonna die. Does that mean they're all martyrs? No. We do not think of him simply as a good Christian who has been elevated to the company of the saints, for that would be simply to rejoice. And neither our mourning nor our rejoicing is as the world's is. A Christian martyrdom is never an accident let me, if I can start. Oh, no, here, let me finish. A Christian's martyrdom is never an accident, for saints are not made by accident. Still less is a Christian martyrdom the effect of a man's will to become a saint 
as a man by willing and contriving may become a ruler of men. A martyrdom is always the design of God for his love of men to warn them and to lead them, to bring them back to his ways. It is never the design of man. Um, Somebody paraphrase that. What's he saying? Karen, what's he saying? And why is it important? Is this too hot? Should I turn this off? I'm just hot, but maybe What's he saying? And why does it matter? Uh, He's saying it's not up to man, it's up to God. Everything's in God's time and God's will. Yeah. And that's why it's important. Yeah. That's part of his martyrdom for right reasoning. Yeah. Now he's saying it publicly, he's supposed to, maybe previously, where he kind of made up his mind and had that decision. Now he's putting it out there in public. I've, I've been. If you, have any have you any of you seen the movie Unplanned? No. You, are you aware of it? It's that movie that came out about Abby Johnson, who was an employee of Planned Parenthood, who who had been had worked for them for I think for eight years, and um, by a strange set of circumstances, was taken into a room in which she watched an abortion, and she was so horrified at by it, she turned away and uh, it, it, sobbing in grief wrote a novel about it and it was turned into a movie that is out on DVD now and it's moved a lot of people. It's a fundamentalist movie and it's interesting if you watch the movie it's, it's hard to come away from the movie without thinking that what happened was an accident. Just a, And the guy who sings the lyrics at the end says there are no accidents because everything's God's will. So what's the difference between a fundamentalist position on accidents and a Catholic. If there are no accidents, we're back in Calvin's world. Predestination. And you could say every accident is a miracle. I mean, who would argue with you? You can't. Um, the reason the church goes to such extremes to validate claims about visions and you know religious experiences because everybody can claim they've had a religious experience and very often people make claims that whose grounds we question you know that that the, the religious imagination can get so carried away with itself the church is the one institution in the world that, that holds faith and reason together and here Thomas or Elliot is making clear, at least in Thomas's words, that martyrdom's not an accident. It's a design of God. It seems to me to, to underscore, you know, that the, the lines earlier of the women with this new terror. That, um, that it, this is God's design, that it more immediately involves him in the world and the unholy forces, the lords of, what's it, what they call them, the lords of evil? But they're in the presence of something deeper than most of the religious experiences we have in our lives. Um, Christian martyrdom is never an accident. A martyrdom is always the design of God for his love of men to warn them and to lead them, to bring them back to his ways. 
It's never the design of men. I'm going back to that tempter's words, which were um, a duplicate of Thomas's own words. Um, an eternal patience to which all men must consent that it may be willed, that God may will what we've given our wills to, if that's freely what we choose, and which all must suffer that they may will it. Because to do the will of God is to suffer. It asks that we give up things here. If I can put this shortly, I hope, I hope if you guys disagree, please. If I can put this in more general terms, it, it, it's saying, we're asked to love the way God does. Whatever we're doing in the world, whatever efforts we make, Beckett is trying to answer the injustices of a king. The king attempting to make claims on the church to use the church for his own purposes. That's what's going on here. And if you go back, remember when we did Dante and when actually, yeah, when we, yeah, and Dante and the, and the Catholic Protestant thing, I gave you that handout where Galatius, Pope Galatius, what was that, fourth century? He wrote that letter in which he said there are two powers. There are two powers. Um, the, the power of, um, um, the power of God over the soul and the power of the king or Caesar over the body and the world. Those two, those two powers define the powers that we have to deal with in our earthly existence. One has its source in God. It's the higher because it, it has to do with the ultimate outcome of our soul, our, our ultimate destiny, to either be with God or separated from him. So the, the authority over the soul is a higher authority than the authority over the body or the world. One belongs to God through the church. The other belongs to Caesar through the temporal order. Okay, um, so when Becket resigned the chancellorship and when he was made archbishop, he was giving himself to the Pope and the church to carry out the authority of God on earth. That's what put him into conflict with Henry. Henry did not want um, to give up that power he had over the clergy. So, Thomas is here saying the will of God, martyrs are not an accident. They're not the design of men. Um, what's happening with the men who are called to this is that they're giving their wills to something God wants. That he's doing something through these things. Um, Do you think he's saying something political too? Go ahead. I put a chapter one. Because he's going to be put to death. He's letting people know that not being martyred by the king. Or for political reasons. Right. Yeah. That it's beyond the scope of yeah. that guy. Yeah. Yeah. Here, to, to end the homily, he says, I've spoken to you today, dear children of God, of the martyrs of the past, asking you to remember, especially our martyr of Canterbury, the blessed Archbishop Elphege, because it's fitting on Christ's birthday to remember what is that peace which he brought, and because, dear children, I do not think I shall ever preach to you again, because it's possible that in a short time you may have another martyr, and that one perhaps not the last. I would have you keep in your hearts these words that I say, and think of them at another time. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Ghost, he blesses himself. Now, hold on to that while we go to part two. Because, We're there. Sorry? We're there. I'm sorry, don't. 
in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit could be a blessing on them. Everybody, yeah. Yeah. Hold on. Take a look at part two now. Um, the chorus begins again as they did, and they keep speaking about death, or an awareness of death coming, but they do it in the context of the cyclical natures of season. Spring, spring following winter, summer preceding winter, you know, the things come and go. 53, the starved cow sits in the field, attentive and in the wood, the owl rehearses the hollow note of death. What sign of a bitter spring, the winds stored up in the east. What at the time of the birth of our Lord at Christmas tide, is there not peace upon earth, goodwill upon men, among men? The peace of this world is always uncertain unless men keep their peace with God. All history shows that. I hope there's no question about that. I mean, every play we've ever written by a serious writer, Homer, Shakespeare, child, doesn't matter. Every act to correct an injustice will always produce another injustice. I mean, we're constantly trying to catch up with the past and always failing in some way. It's only, it's only somehow when we work to justice and bring a love to it that's divine that we can get close to any peace. The, the course goes on. War among men defiles this world, but death in the Lord renews it. That a person's offering his life. Think about this. Everything we do has a tendency to work for ourselves. I want money, I want a home, I want comfort, I want pleasure, I want a job, I want fame, I want status. Meatballs. Um, huh? Meatballs. Meatballs. Oh yes. my goodness. Meatballs. <laughs> Certain ones, certainly for me. Um, and what the paradox of our world, it's only when we give ourselves up that a that we become the agency for a grace entering the world. The choir goes on in 54, and the world must be cleansed in the winter or we shall have only a sour spring. The interesting thing about this is, if you go back to the poets always, the poets forever know that there's something regenerative in nature. It's almost like a foreshadowing of Christ. Every spring, every dying, every spring leads to a rebirth. There is something inherent in the nature of our world that was already looking forward to Christ and should remind us of him because it's always an earth. Things need to die in order to come to life again or they won't have a healthy life. We all know that from plants and so a wonder, there, there's this sort of elegiac lament or awareness of the, the cycles that lead from death to rebirth. The world must be cleaned in the winter or we shall have only a sour spring a parched summer, an empty harvest. Winter's essential. Death has got to be a part of our life. We have to make a place for it. If we grieve about that, if we whine about that, we're whining when we shouldn't. Between Christmas and Easter, what work shall be done? The plowman will go out to march. He's getting ready. What work shall have been done? What wrong shall the bird's song cover, the green trees cover? What wrong shall the fresh earth convert? So not only does the earth attempt work to replenish and correct itself, humans have to pick up their wrongs, the disorders, and try to bring life out of them. Shall the fresh earth cover? We wait and the time is short, but waiting is long. Now, 
I just want a few line, read a few lines and then I want to stop. Um, and we're going to look at the rest next week. Now the priests come in after the chorus speaks and says, 54, since Christmas a day and the day of St. Stephen, first martyr. In Thomas's homily, we heard that in, on Christmas day, we enter into a mystery, the paradox of rejoicing at our height and mourning at our depths. We're asked to hold both of those things on together. The very next day after Christmas is the martyrdom. We celebrate the martyrdom of St. Stephen, the first martyr, immediately after. So here's our commercial world. Who wants to remember death on Christmas? What evidence of there? When you go into the commercial world, it's all buy, 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 sell, sell, you know. God, it's just, I don't want to go on. It just drives me nuts. So here's Christmas. Any sense of anything to mourn? I'm not kidding. I'm sorry. I'm going to get personal here for a second because I try not to be political. But I, we all know that, that, that I think the rate of suicides during the Christmas season is higher than at any other time of the world. The expectations during Christmas go through the roof. And when people can't meet those expectations, what happens? I mean, the disappointments are flooring. So Christmas is this amazing time where the world tends to promote buy, 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 have everything you want. The church, as it's being presented here, celebrates a, a, a birth and a death simultaneously. We take mass on that day. We receive the Eucharist. We're celebrating Christ's death. The very next day, the martyrdom of St. Stephen. Four days later? No, one day. One day, it's the third day. On the fourth day, we celebrate um, the death of the holy innocents, all the children. So what the church is asking us to remember, not to forget, is there's this paradox on Christmas, and it's followed by St. Stephen, the first martyr, and the death of the innocents, when Herod said, yeah. kill the children. So the church is asking us in this season of joy. So immediately after the, the homily, we've got this, the first priest. Since Christmas a day and the day of St. Stephen, first martyr. Now we've got these italicized lines. Princes, moreover, did sit and did witness falsely against me. Who is that? More fault witness against Stephen. And Stephen and Christ, and anticipating Thomas, the day that was always most dear to the Archbishop Thomas, he loved that day, as he kneeled down and cried with a loud voice, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. You know that that's what Stephen said because he said, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. Mm -hmm. Now there's an indroit, the introduction of Stephen is heard. The second priest comes in with a banner of John and says, since St. Stephen, a day, and the day of St. John, the apostle. And it's in the midst of the congregation. John speaks about the word entering the world. The third priest comes in. He enters with a banner of the holy innocence, another indroit. The, the third priest says, since St. John, the, the apostle, a day, and the day of the holy innocence, out of the mouths of the very babes, O God, are the voice of many waters, of thunder of harps, they sung, as it were, a new song. The blood of thy saints have they shed like water, and there was no man to bury them. Avenge, O Lord, the blood of thy saints. In Rama, a voice heard weeping. Now the priests are going to go. First priest, 
Since the holy innocents, a day. Now we've heard that now four times. Stephen, a day. John, a day. Um, the holy innocents, a day. Um, the fourth day from Christmas. The three priests say together, Rejoice we all keeping holy day. And then they start asking the three priests, Rejoice we all keeping the day. The first priest, today. Second priest, today. What is today? For the day is half gone. First priest, today, what is today? But another day, the dusk of the year. Second priest, today, what is today? Another night and another dawn. Third priest, what day is the day that we know that we hope for or fear for? Every day is the day we should fear from or hope from. One moment weighs like another. Only in retrospection selection we say that was the day. The critical moment that is always now and here, even now, in sordid particulars, the eternal design may appear. That's the, the, the still point at the center of the wheel. Why all this attention to days? And what's the difference between the first two priests and the second when he said, what day is the day that we know that we hope for or fear for? Every day is the day we should fear from or hope from one moment weighs like another, only in retrospection selection we say that was the day, the critical moment that is always now and here. Even now, in sordid particulars, the eternal design may appear in the here and now. Here and now, that's the point. Why all this attention to days? What's going on? Sorry, Joe's not here in Marion. Three days of March. Wait, wait one second, Ken. Sorry, Doc. Give me one second, please. Just to, to go back. Just first priest since Christmas a day. He goes on. Second priest since St. Stephen a day. Third priest since St. John the Apostle a day, and a day of the Holy Innocents. And the three together say, "Rejoice, we all keeping Holy Day." And then they ask, "What day is it?" Sorry. When we have um, Stephen, St. John, and the Holy Innocents, so that's three days of martyrs, Christ's death on Christmas with the Eucharist, and we have three days of martyrs, and isn't the fourth day after that, I mean the day after that, isn't that the day that Thomas is killed? He's martyred the fourth day, I think. I think the I mean, at least as the priest says, that the holy innocents were I thought were killed on four days from Christmas. And I don't was John martyred. I don't think he was, but he was a saint. But what's the importance of the day? Christmas a day, Saint Stephen a day, the holy innocents a day. Karen, what's? Nikki. Julie, you've got to answer this. No. <laughs> I'm confused. A day is a measure of time. Yeah. 
But why? What happens on a holy day? What should happen on a holy day? I think the likelihood is that it too often doesn't, but or at least in not the full measure. What should happen on a holy day? St. Stephen's Day or supposed to, Christmas? I'm supposed to remember what that day represents. Remember? Or to live. To live. That There's way. a big difference between commemorating Christ's right. act. Wait, hold, this is so cruel. You know, because you know that lots of churches believe in the Eucharist. You're, commem- you're remembering. You're going back. You're remembering. Right. And participating in it. Right, okay. So... I think what's going on here is, and it's interesting to see where the priests are. This is sort of, this is sort of shocking. And, and Elliot, I think he knows what he's doing. The priests are going, what day, what day, what day? I think the point is that on, on those days, we're, we're invited to enter back into time, that palimpsest, so that we're one with that person, just as we are invited to do with the Eucharist. But we're not commemorating act, we're entering into it. And okay. the question is, where are we? Remember I asked the, in the parking lot. When we do that, where are we? How much are we living in mystery, the actual call to any of us? Um, and how much are we not? How much have we compromised with the world? Because what we've been witnessing is exactly that drama with the priests, the tempters, the knights. So let me leave it here and we'll pick it up. But here's, let me, if I can just reinforce this for a second. In, in the sacramental life of the church, the people who are participating are invited to live in a timeless moment. We're supposed to find in our own time a simultaneity with whatever event we're, you know, in the gospel, certain readings, in the Eucharist, Christ. Here, the whole play is moving towards a martyrdom. It's a, it's, it's, it takes us out of the ordinary. I mean, everything about the play is showing that it, it's terrifying for the chorus. It's frightening to be implicated, involved. And, and, I, and I'm giving the play away right now, but you know, if you've read it, at the very end of the play, the knights are going to come out. They're going to defend themselves, and they're going to do it in a way that implicates us in that act to make us aware that we're, we're guilty, that we've shared in it. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, one of the questions the play is asking us is pushing on us all the time. Where are we? The day, the day, the day, Christmas, the day, Stephen, the day, the Holy Innocence, the day. Are we living in the confines of our own world, the narrow confirm where we want things the way we want them, the comfort, the, you know, the wealth, the power, the, the way we want the world to have things our way? Or are we entering into this, I love those lines, God. Are we entering into this world that draws us more closer to the still point where the love that moves us is one with the love of God, that we're one with his world, close to that music of the spheres, close to that still point, that stillness, that peace. And is, there, is, is it clear that nobody can get there without giving up the things that keep us from it? So that, those, that last temptation of Thomas that I keep going back to, that I just think is so important. An eternal patience, that's God, to which all must consent that it may be willed, and which all must suffer that they may will it, that the pattern may subsist, that the wheel may turn, and still be forever still. So for us to be in the world, or Thomas, or the priests, to be in the world moving with it, but doing all that we can 
to renounce it, to move away from it, to move towards that still point, when the cost of it we know is going to be a death. Whatever the death is. Cake, meatballs, <laughs> money, sex, you know, whatever it is that... So this is the, I mean, we've been, you know, when you discard a letter or Shakespeare or, I mean, so many of the plays have been dealing with Christ. It seems to me this more immediately, and it's interesting to me, there's no immediate image of Christ, you know, but everything about the play is going to the crucifixion and Thomas's participation in, in this moment. So let me stop. Um, any questions or comments or thoughts about this? We'll finish it next week. Um, but I just wanted to get it all out so we could deal with the climax and see where all of this is going. Do you have anything? Oh, no. I don't want you to hold back. <laughs> just the first part, I got really lost in all the poems and all that stuff. But once we got into the book part, then I was able to talk better. Poem's not easy. Poem is really, really hard. It's a hard poem. Lots of the, lots of the poems are easier. Usually, I mean, what I do, I don't know if Gita's told you, but I generally, almost always, I try to start with the lyric. And the reason for that was that I wanted everybody to see that poetry had a musical aspect to it and that all of it has this harmony, this beauty, this order and it's, it's more apparent in the lyric. Yeah, and it's that kind of couch. <laughs> I know. It's like, ooh, are you sick in? That's why I don't sit in it because I just disappear. Uh, extricate. Uh, come on, use your... <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Well, thank you for coming. Enjoyed it very much. I hope we see you again. Mesmerized. Yes, yes, you will be. No, she's got it. I just won't go home. I have to come directly out here because once I go home, it's hard to get me out. That's what I've been telling Geetha all the time. Geetha, I just never went home. But I'm not going to the gym with her either. <laughs> I know. I'm the same way. Once I, get, once I get home, I don't want to. I know. I just can't go home. She puts all of us to shame at the gym. I know. She's God. really good at that. Yeah. What do you mean good? She, she gets on the machine. But I mean, there's nobody in the gym that does what she does. She goes to a machine and she goes to sleep. Goes <laughs> Oh, yeah. She keeps moving. Her, her, her eyes are closed. She's meditating. She's not there. She's in some other world. The rest of us are agonizing. I did not know that you closed her eyes. Sometimes I pray. Sometimes I think about what oh. I said. <laughs> well, sometimes I try to sleep. That's awesome. It's nice meeting you all. Bye, Julie. See you Bye. tomorrow. Bye. Bye.